Hello, and welcome to this Rash Decision podcast, where we look at skin-related issues, conditions, and treatments in an interesting and informed way. I'm Dr. Roger Henderson. I'm a GP with a long-standing interest in this particular area of health. And I'm Dr. George Moncrief. I was also a GP, though I've now retired from my practice. I was also the chair of the Dermatology Council of England. Today, Roger and I will be talking about the basics of the very common skin condition, atopic eczema. And this is the first of a three-part podcast. Next time, we'll be looking at how eczema is treated, including self-help tips, how to prevent the condition flaring, and skin treatments. It's interesting, George, because even yesterday in my surgery, I was counting up and I saw three patients with a topic eczema that they'd had for years and that's not an unusual day in surgery for me but maybe let's just start with the basics and perhaps the most obvious question of them all what's eczema and what do we mean by atopic eczema well the word atopic comes from two greek um, derivations a meaning without and topic a place So when two guys, Coker and Cook, back in 1923, first recognised the association between eczema, asthma and hay fever, they had no place to classify it. There's nowhere in their textbooks. Allergy wasn't described and and this sort of condition wasn't recognised at all. They they knew about trauma, they knew about cancers, they knew about um, infections, but this was a weird collection of conditions. So they opened a new chapter and they called it atopic, without a place. The word eczema again comes from Greek, ek meaning out of and zema, a boil. So in eczema, you get little bubbles of fluid in the, in the top layer of the skin coming to the surface and then rupturing onto the surface. So they're coming out. So we call that eczema, E-C-Z-E-M-A. And there's this unholy trinity in medicine, isn't there, um, of, of A to P that we often see so much in our, in our surgeries with our patients, which is eczema, asthma, and hay fever and although it's a slight truism it is true is it not that if you have say a condition like eczema you are statistically at least more likely to have one or even both of the others the the asthma or the hay fever they do tend to be bedfellows absolutely and in fact we have sometimes called it the atopic march because things generally start with atopic eczema in infancy from a few months of age and then asthma comes on a few, maybe a year or so after that, and it may last all your life, or sometimes people do grow out of their asthma to some extent. And then hay fever comes on in, in slightly, slightly later childhood, typically, and then can last for the rest of their life. So that's called the atopic march. But very definitely, those three conditions are strongly linked. I personally believe, in fact, it's atopic that sets off the atopic march. And if you can prevent atopic eczema in an individual, maybe you can prevent them developing asthma or hay fever. That's a wonderful question, which we don't really have the answer to yet. It's interesting that because as a young child, I had very mild uh, uh, asthma, uh, which did require treatment and hampered me slightly and then sort of vanished as I got into my uh, my teens. And I, I don't have any of that uh, triumvirate uh, anymore. So it does show that you can have uh, one of an atopic condition and then it vanishes. But unfortunately, in my experience, most people, even if it's relatively mild, are stuck with things for a relatively 
long time. Now, we mustn't forget the skin is our biggest organ uh, in, our, in the body. Um, and I suppose we've got to look at, well, why should someone sort of rock up at our surgery with atopic eczema? What actually causes it? And I suppose also, um, compared to when you and I were um, young medical students far too long ago, um, the incidence of eczema we're now seeing um, is way more than it was then. It is on literally the march, isn't it? Indeed it is. Uh, it, it is shocking. I don't know any other inflammatory disorder that has increased as fast as atopic eczema has in the last 70 years or so. After the Second World War, the number of preschool children with atopic eczema was just a few percent, two or three percent. That's one child in 40 or so. Today, it affects one child in four almost, um, certainly more than one child in five. It has just been rising relentlessly over these years. Um, fortunately, it's now plateauing at this epidemic level in, in preschool children, especially in, in developed countries. But it, it's alarming how fast it's increased. And, and this is probably very simplistic, but it's, it's the way my mind works. Is it because that your kids in bombed out London after the war were dirtier than those in leafy suburbia today? I think that's got a huge amount to do with it. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, our ancestors didn't wash and our skin hasn't evolved to cope with today's fetish of washing. Actually, there's nothing wrong with being clean, but it's the detergent. It's detergents that raise the surface pH, damage that skin barrier, uh, dry it out, cause it to become cracked. It becomes inflamed. And when it's inflamed, the ability of the skin to make a skin barrier is compromised. And so you're into a bit of a vicious cycle there. And so the washing with soaps, detergents, shower gels, shampoos on a daily basis, our skin doesn't stand a chance of recovery. And if you're genetically prone to develop a, a response, an abnormal immune response, when allergens and bacteria get through the skin, you'll get eczema. And that then makes everything much worse. It's more itchy, it's more inflamed, you scratch it, you damage it more, and things are set up. So I think detergents and washing has played a huge part in the in to account for the increase in the incidence. The other thing that's happened during those 70 years is antibiotics. Um, people didn't use antibiotics much before the end of the Second World War. They were they weren't really available. And today we, we've been throwing them around like they're smarties. And if you have one capsule of one antibiotic once in your life, you'll never get your normal microbiome back, both in your gut and on the skin. And in eczema, we have a very abnormal microbiome, skin microbiome. The skin is, is in the majority of people with atopic eczema, their entire skin has an abnormal microbiome. It's lost its normal diversity, and it's got a preponderance of a bad bacteria called Staphylococcus aureus. And that particularly drives flares of eczema. So my personal thought, it's a combination of exposure to antibiotics, often early in life, disturbing the microbiome and a damaged skin barrier, allowing these bad bacteria to get through the skin and trigger abnormal immune responses, which are causing more damage and making everything else worse. Yeah, that, that, that really some salutary stats there, especially about the one antibiotic taken once, which will have had many jaws 
um, dropping. Um, genetics. If your mom or your dad, say, had eczema, are you in the firing line more than if your parents didn't have it? Yeah, very definitely you are. Yes. So that that will mean that the way in which your body responds to the penetration of allergens and pathogens, bacteria um, and viruses is an abnormal way that leads towards the production of um, what are called interleukins, chemicals, uh, proteins that communicate in the immune system and and drive this abnormal immune response. So, so certainly twin studies and family studies have definitely shown a preponderance of atopic disease. Sometimes one child in the family has atopic eczema and a parent has asthma and a sister has hay fever. I mean, it, it doesn't always run absolutely true. But we also know that these some of the interleukins that are produced, these, these proteins I was talking about, that um, are produced abnormally in somebody with atopic response, are quite small proteins, like there's one called IL-7, number seven. Um, its proper name is, its big name is thymic stromal lymphopoietin. And this thymic stromal lymphopoietin can travel around the body. And I think it's that that triggers an alteration in the immune response in the lungs, presenting with asthma in the nose and, and the back of the throat presenting as hay fever and the eyes and again in the in the gullet the esophagus presenting with a condition called eosinophilic esophagitis so it's i think it's interleukin 7 that's driving around the body and driving this atopic march people often um, talk about artificial intelligence and the, the rise of supercomputers and and how where we've got to with technology it still does not hold a candle to how complicated our body is we are the greatest supercomputer there probably will ever be um and this is just a small example of of what's going on sort of under <laughs> under the surface in our in, in our in our chips um before we sort of move on to to uh, away from what's causes eczema i think it's probably just worth um touching on because it's so topical um climate um, obviously, climate change, you know, hugely important now in all in all our lives. Um, and I suspect that the climate, um, there are climate variations in populations around the globe with um, eczema um, frequency. Would I would I be right in thinking that? You are indeed right. Yes, and I'm not sure so much climate change. I haven't looked at that specifically, uh, but. We nowadays live in very dry accommodation, don't we? We have dry carpets on the wall. The walls are, are dry. We have central heating, air conditioning sometimes in the summer. The air is dry. And the drier the air, the harder it is for the skin to function effectively and for the skin barrier to retain water. If it doesn't retain water and dries out, it can crack and then pores open in the, or splits open in the skin and that allows bacteria to get in and, and open this vicious cycle. So yeah, our ancestors lived in a much more humid environment, um, damp walls, damp floors and high humidity. Nowadays, that's not the case. So basically time's going to tell with, with, with that one. So I think this is a perfect time for us to take the opportunity just to say a few words about our kind sponsor, Apriderm and their range of emollients and barrier creams. As we know, everyone's skin is unique. In many ways as a GB, 
it has often been tricky to find an emollient that immediately suited a person and their condition. We know it's not as simple as one condition, one type of emollient. It's often a case of a patient trying an emollient and then going back and forth with several prescriptions and visits to us and other practices or other doctors, which is not ideal for them or for us. Fortunately, Apoderm have developed a genius solution to simplify the whole process of selecting the emollient for both patients and healthcare professionals. The Apoderm emollient starter pack I love, contains all four of their emollients. And each of those has a unique consistency and a unique level of hydration. So the point here is that with just one prescription, uh, we can give our patients the opportunity to try each one and find the one that works best for them. Now, obviously, this gives patients choice. It aids compliance, vitally important, whilst at the same time saving time, money, and most importantly, fewer visits for the patient. Now, as a GP, that ticks every box and it sounds like a perfect answer for me. So because of that, I've been a huge advocate of the Apoderm range for a while now, and it's such a great range of products. I actually use them to moisturize my skin. All are suitable from birth, uh, and they're free from common irritants and sensitizers, which is so important these days. I have to say that I now love them even more. So if you see patients with dry skin conditions and are a prescriber, simply prescribe the Apoderm Emollient Starter Pack, which incidentally also comes with a handy patient self-care guide. It's a game changer for the world of dermatology. Let's have a look at symptoms. Um, now for me in, in surgery, uh, and I suppose I was taught this as a, as a medical student, um, eczema equals itch. And um, almost to the point where if you haven't got itchy skin, it's possibly unlikely that you're going to have eczema at all. When you are, are talking to someone about their, their symptoms of eczema, and I suppose anybody listening who does have eczema, um, would itch be at the top of your list of, of what to look out for? Itch is very definitely at the top of the list. It's And you're absolutely right. If it isn't itchy, it isn't atopic eczema. There, there are lots of different types of eczema, and I, we're not going to talk about those in detail today. So contact allergic eczema is very itchy. Discoid eczema is very itchy usually. Um, but there are others like um, seborrheic eczema, which is only mildly itchy, or perioral dermatitis, which is only mildly itchy usually. But atopic eczema is very itchy indeed. It's, it's one of the most nasty itchy conditions and itch is the worst symptom for most patients with eczema. It's itch that disturbs their sleep and causes them to scratch. Often the itch is so bad, patients tell me they'd rather the pain of their skin being torn uh, and flayed than than the itch. They, they, they scratch away at it night and day, and it, it, it really stops from getting on with their lives. It, it interferes with concentration for exams, for work, for driving, and sleep, most importantly. Yeah, and we see this so often in our surgeries, uh, the itch-scratch cycle, where um, patients, even though they know just how damaging scratching their skin is and the impact of that and the consequences of that, they still cannot stop themselves from scratching their skin because the itch is, is so severe. And that's why they get exhausted because they are scratching in the night, even when they think they're asleep, they're not, they're waking to scratch their skin. And it's, it's awful when you see someone drag themselves into your surgery, not only with uh, their skin condition, but because they're absolutely shattered because of the impact of not sleeping and everything that, that goes with that. So very much this is a holistic 
condition, isn't it? It doesn't just affect the skin, it affects not only that person, but that whole person's efficiency, their concentrations, and often their family as well. Indeed. I think when you talk about itch and itch scratch, when, when you scratch the skin, you damage it, and that damages the barrier, causes more inflammation, and it makes the itch worse. And so you get into this vicious cycle of itch scratch, or itch scratch itch. But it's more than that. It's for the patient. It's the time they spend having to put their treatments on, accessing healthcare, going to appointments, um, and then problems that are hard sometimes to define, like being bullied or ostracised or left out of a team, causing in the end a feeling of isolation and depression. I think a lot of people with with eczema end up with symptoms of depression and anxiety, perhaps aggravated by their disturbed sleep patterns. And uh, so there's so much more to the skin than just what we see uh, affecting the skin. It's, it's a much more, as you say, a holistic problem. I could go further and say there are studies showing that in severe eczema, the chronic inflammatory load is bad for your arteries. And so with patients with severe atopic eczema, there are concerns that it, it may be playing a part in accelerating the hardening of our arteries, causing an increased risk of heart failure, heart attacks, and strokes. So it's a disease to take very seriously, particularly at the severe end of the spectrum. Now, to those that don't know what eczema looks like, if someone walks in with eczema on their skin how would it normally present in, in practice to you and to me the areas of skin that are affected by eczema in fact the whole skin in somebody with atopic eczema is abnormal and the whole skin is drier than normal the whole skin is behaving differently but the areas that are predominantly affected will have a, a background redness to them they look inflamed they look sore they're particularly dry they can have a, a scale on the surface the skin can be split it can be weeping and if it's been scratched you, area, you see areas where the scratching has torn the top layer of the skin off Chronic rubbing can cause the skin to become thickened in the deeper layers and that exaggerates the skin markings. Typically, it starts in infancy um, from about the age of two or three months. And in, in little infants, it, it's usually on their cheeks and, and, and on their face, often sparing immediately around the mouth. The immediate area of skin around the mouth can be okay. There's one interesting fact, actually. The tip of the nose is virtually never affected in, in atopic eczema, even in the very severe patterns, the end of the nose. For some reason, the skin there is protected from getting any eczema. That's known as Yamamoto sign. Um, but the chronic rubbing can cause double folds under the lower eyelid. And um, it, it's just you've got this generally dry, itchy skin that can often then become infected. And so it becomes weepy with crusty from in, in surface infections. In childhood, it typically settles into the thinnest skin areas. So that's around the eyes, um, the fronts of the elbows where the skin is particularly thin and vulnerable, the backs of the knees. But it's often much more generalized than that. Interesting, you can sometimes get round sort of um, coin-shaped or discoid patches of eczema on the body as well. Into adult life, all these areas are still typically affected, but um, a very common pattern of atopic eczema in adults is just to have hand eczema, probably because our hands are exposed to so many detergents and chemicals and are used so much throughout the day that the hands become particularly vulnerable, both the palms and the backs of the hands. But in somebody with severe eczema, it can really cover their whole skin, 
concentrating on these thinner, more vulnerable skin areas in particular. In, in dark skin, you can get other patterns, interestingly. In skin of color, you can sometimes get a follicular pattern, very subtle, um, where you just get little bumps, tiny bumps, pinhead-sized bumps around hair follicles. And it really doesn't look terribly impressive. And against the dark background, you don't see that redness of the skin. You just see these very subtle bumps, and they are intensely itchy. And that is called follicular eczema, because all the bumps are around hair follicles. There's a similar pattern that occurs on the face and the neck, which we call papular eczema, again, more common in darker skin. And then strangely, for reasons I don't understand, you can get a reverse pattern in dark skin, where it's rather than on the fronts of the elbows and the backs of the knees, it's the um, backs of the elbows and the fronts of the knees. So you do see slightly different patterns. And of course, all the rubbing and scratching and inflammation that it causes can result in pigment leaking into the surrounding tissue. So you get some quite marked post-inflammatory increased pigmentation, giving a stain of, of pigment in the skin that can take months or even years to fade. From all that rubbing, sometimes patients have uh, shiny nails. <laughs> I often start by looking at the nails as a normal um, habit of mine is, is to take the hand and, and shake their hand and introduce myself and then just hang on to it and, and just look at the nails and uh, if they're really shiny that it's interesting but sometimes with eczema there's a tendency to want to just gently rub it to give relief and that causes the shiny nails in other individuals they really want to pick and they and they tear into the skin and, and then they get tears in the skin to see rather than the, the shine that's a fantastic uh, tip um Mention the skin of colour. Very interesting. And I suspect there's a whole podcast that you and I will do on this. Um, it's unfortunately been the case, although it is now changing, which is good news, that the vast majority of uh, skin textbooks, dermatology courses and textbooks, when we were shown slides of things like eczema, it was always on white skin, Caucasian skin. Now, that is changing, but it does make it tricky sometimes as someone with dark skin um, does present with eczema because the often subtle signs of mild eczema can be hard to see uh, in dark skin. Um, now that's just really just an observation, as I say, we'll touch on it on it later, but there is that disparity in not only, I think, medical education, which is changing for the better, um, but also in, in our day-to-day -day practice where white skin with eczema um, can be a little easier to observe than dark skin with eczema. And I think that's probably true. Yes, certainly. The um, I think we all have been taught skin disease on white skin. And I went through my atlases recently and I couldn't see in my the atlases I used at medical school a single image of skin of colour in these often with four or 500 images of skin conditions. And dark skin does present problems. And I think that make a fabulous podcast, yes. Well, that's a date. We'll come back to that podcast because I couldn't agree more. That's going to be an absolute cracker. Um, some people are often surprised when um, they hear that we don't do tests uh, or particular diagnostic tests for usual cases of eczema and that's true usually someone walks in we can diagnose it just by taking a good history and then looking at the skin and it's actually quite rare in my experience that you actually need to go out and do diagnostic tests and i suspect it's the same in your practice you know i can't remember when i last did a test for eczema i, I can't even think what test i'd probably do indeed it, it is it is based on history and examination and, and more often than not the patient comes in and says i've got eczema they know it themselves and it's obvious 
tests for there's not much point doing swabs um, with a with a flare flares of eczema are invariably infected so this bacteria i mentioned earlier staphylococcus aureus is invariably present in in, in the infection so why swab you'll, you'll find it there that, that doesn't mean that treating with antibiotics is important in fact the studies have shown that the use of antibiotics in primary care in general practice uh, for flares of eczema make no difference to the eczema. So you treat the eczema. If you treat the eczema, the, the body will clear the infection. The only time I'd ever consider an antibiotic if, if the infection is really rampant or if the patient is particularly unwell, and, and I treat the unwellness. But I wouldn't hope to improve the flare by using an antibiotic, either topically, that's on the skin, or by mouth. And I think we'll just touch on flares briefly um, before we sort of um, finish this little initial chat on, on eczema. Um, in terms of what causes eczema to flare, we've touched on infection, we've touched on the environment. Um, adherence to treatment, if you have someone with eczema um, who is on treatment, um, we must always ask the question, is that person using that treatment effectively? Are they complying with treatment and unfortunately um, I've lost count of the number of times when I've asked that question and drilled down into their treatment compliance. It's nothing like it should be and rather than their eczema uh, flaring for other reasons, it simply was because they weren't treating their eczema correctly. They had the treatment, um, they may or may not have known what to do with that treatment, usually they did know what to do with it, but in their busy lives they were forgetting to put it on. Um, so asking a patient, uh, how are you using that treatment if they've got a flare, is for me one of the first questions I always ask. Me too. And I think certainly with things like steroids, there's concern about steroids. We, and we're going to come on to that in our next podcast on, on the treatment or the management of atopic eczema. But I, I, I agree, looking at what they're actually doing and are they still washing with soaps and detergents? Because if they are, their skin will never get better. Um, are they using their molins and are they using the treatments that we expect them to be using? And the people have got busy lives and they've got other things to worry about. They've got to get the children to school. There may not be time to do all this. So the skincare treatment is type, quite time consuming and, and another invasion into their, into their ability and their lifestyle and everything else. But generally speaking, um, flares um, maybe aggravated by those factors, but infection plays a part. So the skin is broken, bacteria take advantage of the skin barrier not functioning. The skin barrier is there to stop bacteria getting into us. And then once they get in, you start this start vicious cycle starting. It becomes inflamed, they scratch it, the skin is damaged, that makes things even easier for bugs to get in and so on. So flares are very definitely associated with infection, but also other things can affect the way in which our skin is working and at times of stress we all know that our skin isn't doesn't feel normal doesn't work normally and at times of stress eczema is likely to flare and of course if you're not sleeping and you're tired and you're late for work and you don't do your treatment or whatever i'm not trying to put the blame on my patients but i'm just saying so many factors can compound here to result in a flare and the average patient with moderate eczema is having about nine flares a year. Severe eczema is 11, that's almost one a month. And each of these flares is taking two to three weeks to settle. 
So you can see that a lot of our patients with eczema are just a rebounding, ricocheting from one flare to another. And when those flares are bad, that's when they go to see their doctor who treats the flare. And I think what we have not been good at as the medical profession is helping our patients to understand how to keep themselves well in between flares. But I think that's something for us to discuss in our next podcast. I think I think it is. Um, but that really is a message from the wayside pulpit to close on today. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Aperderm, for all their help in putting these Rash Decision podcasts together. So, until the next time, it's goodbye from George. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>